And so I, I felt that under those circumstances, religion certainly, the religions that I was dealing with, did not manifest what mattered to me. You've already read what matters to me. Mm-hmm. And I said I was not going to have my children christened in that church. Why should I get a religious nod on the head with a dab of water from from that group? And then we, you had a brief period when you did go back, I remember, in the, in the late 80s. Remember I joined the choir? When you were in the choir, yeah. yeah. And we went. I tried. Um, and I found that there were interesting things about the church. Architecture, um, music, some of the words. But it wasn't worth Sunday morning. You have found the place to be. This is the Self-Love Peddler Show. I'm Sophie McCallum, your personal self-love peddler. Please leave the single narrative, airbrushed, beauty-bought images you have been forced-fed at the door. Here we examine our relationship with our bodies and the many shapes and nuances our bodies have. The only way to end women's cycle of body shaming, judgment, and self-loathing is through a common pact and plan to change the way we collectively think about our bodies and the bodies of those around us. Welcome to the journey. Welcome back. Thank got, you. Not you. You haven't been here before. Oh, <laughs> you're talking to <laughs> your audience. Sorry. That is true. I haven't. I'm here with my mom today, Catherine McCallum. And she just announced that she's not going to talk about her body. So um, I'll unpack that later when she's not here. And I, one of the questions I've been asking people in the studio is if you went out to lunch with your body, what would she say to you? And when I sent my mom, you, mom, that question, I loved your response. You said, of course I'll be there. Do I have to bring lunch? (laughs) (laughs) So um, for me and my bod. For you and your bod. um, We don't have to talk. We don't have to talk about your body if you don't want to. But, um, you know, you are a big part of me. I am a big part of you. That's true. That is true. And I have here a literally a little black book. It's so beautiful. I'll take a picture um, and put it in a place where you all can see it. But it's a little black book of phone numbers and things, the kind of things that those of you who were around before cell phones remember, you know, important numbers and notes and things you didn't want to get stuck without. Um, and a few pages in, is a list that you wrote. When What year roughly do you think you wrote this list? Any idea? Well, you have to give me the book again to see that when <clears throat> some of the um, names and addresses might indicate that. Well, roughly. I would say it's 80s. I'm going to go with 80s. Summerfield. Eight. Mean, uh, it's 80s. That's 80s? Yeah, I mean, I'm not looking for like a specific time and day, just a decade. We got 80s. So this page is entitled... Things that matter, and I want to just list them and then talk about them because I feel really lucky to have this foundation as a human being and as someone who um, works in wellness and mindfulness and thoughts on living, this foundation was huge for me. So thank you. 
So here we go. Things that matter. Number one, being kind and compassionate to other people. Number two, being cheerful and positive. Number three, working hard and doing your best. Number four, fulfilling your obligations, doing what you say you will do. Number five, being honest and true to yourself and others. Number six, getting everything you want out of life without violating numbers one, two, three, four, or five. And then the cherry on this Sunday is <laughs> on a little, um, looks like the back of an envelope that's been cut out in my father's handwriting is number seven learning how to relax and take pleasure from a sense of inner calm and security. It's a beautiful marriage of thoughts. And I have done a podcast with my father. Uh, I did several of them called Chats with Dad last year. And um, we did do a whole um, episode on his number seven so I think it's fitting that we look at number one through six. And what do you think makes you the kind of person, because it's a rare kind of person, that sits down and makes a list of things that matter? Why do I do that? Yeah, what, what is uniquely you that makes you think doing this is important? I, I think I wouldn't, I think I'd be the last person to answer that question. It's just, it's very me, and that's what I do. I would think someone else would say, maybe you would say why I would do that. It's important to me, things that matter. Right. Well, there you go. Okay, it was really nice talking to you today. <laughs> and um, you've been a great guest. I appreciate your valuing my time. <laughs> oh, man, it's not going to be an easy one. But seriously, okay, let's start at the top. Being kind and compassionate to other people. Where'd you learn that? What, what's the question again? <laughs> I love this. Picture this, New York City, 1974. <laughs> <laughs> what do I produce on November 30th? Ta-da! Tell me about, you know what, let's <clears throat> fuck things that matter. Clearly, that's the wrong direction here. No, it's, a, I mean, no, it's no, extremely no. significant. I agree, but it I doesn't... just can't answer why it happened. Why that's what no. matters to me. You have thanked me saying that it is an important part of our life. I am thrilled to introduce you to my newest course, Mastering Your Love Centers Through Conscious, Compassionate Self-Love. Your love centers are your main areas in your life in which you put energy. Our goal together is to encompass these centers with conscious, compassionate self-love so that this boundless and self-expanding love can grow into the life we have always known we were meant to live. Someone once asked me, what are you waiting for? This one question sparked the light in my soul. At the time, I was living unconsciously, without intention, without awareness, without love and balance. Bringing conscious, compassionate self-love to our centers helps us identify where we're placing our energy and where we want or need fulfillment. Now I ask you, 
What are you waiting for? Join me inside of Mastering Your Love Centers through conscious, compassionate self-love. Well, we didn't grow up with religion. We went to church on Christmas and Easter. Thanksgiving, I like, but well, we did that like once. No. I lit no, yeah. You like the when hymns. We, when we went to Vermont, we stopped. The only Thanksgiving I remember going to church was in Vermont, that little tiny oh. church. But um, so I feel that like you know it's very important to understand your own four walls when you're raising a family and your values and all of that. And a lot of people for many years got that from religion, and you consciously kicked religion out the door. Because you didn't like that it wouldn't marry, the church wouldn't marry your father, wouldn't marry you. Excuse me, forget my father. Wouldn't marry your father. That's what I said. Both of those. They wouldn't marry either one of you because there were products of divorce in the union. So I get it. I understand why you wanted nothing to do with it. And this is a wonderful um, replacement. You know, I think that religion has, doesn't speak to a lot of people these days, but there's a void in having some basic values, having parameters, having an understanding of what matters within your own four walls. Because what matters to different people is very different based on experiences. And whatever your life experiences were up until the point where you sat down with your calligraphic pen and wrote this is what I was interested in tapping into. But if you don't want to answer that question. Well, my... uh lack of interest in the church happened when your father had been divorced. And in California in those days, the product, uh, uh, the member of a marriage who had been divorced could not remarry for a year. And what the Episcopal Church said to us was that after that year had transpired, the California year, we could ask the Episcopal Church if we could be married there, and the Episcopal Church would wait um, wait another year, and at the end of that year, not that they would marry us at the end of that year, at the end of that year, they would let us know whether or not they would <coughs> they would marry us. Hmm. And I thought that that was just complete baloney. And the same thing came from the Presbyterians because the pre- because Lawrence and Happy Rockefeller had run into what we ran into at the Episcopal Church, and they walked out the door and trotted across the street to the Presbyterian Church and were married. And the Presbyterian Church in which your father had been raised uh, didn't like that PR, so they took up the same... No, no, do not apply here. And so I, I felt that under those circumstances, religions certainly, the religions that I was dealing with, did not manifest what mattered to me. You've already read what matters to me. Mm-hmm. And I said I was not going to have my children christened in that church. Why should I get a religious nod on the head with a dab of water from from that group. And then we you had a brief period when you did go back, I remember, 
in the in the late eighties. Remember, I joined the choir when you were in the choir. Yeah, yeah. and we. Went. I tried, um, and I found that there were interesting things about the church, architecture, um, music, some of the words, but it wasn't worth Sunday morning. That's awesome. When when you're working five days a week, Sunday morning is an extremely significant period of time which you can use the way you want to. True. True. So being cheerful and positive. How do you remain cheerful and positive? You just do it. What about when you're feeling shittily? You try your best to, to find, you can find something cheerful about any situation. Right. I guarantee you. I, I, you know that I'm on board with you, there the you ultimate go. optimist. And totally. also what's amazing about cheerfulness and just doing it is that they now know through studies that being cheerful affects the outcome, the energy of being cheerful. They did a really interesting study um, where they took um, seven hotels and they told, in, in each of these seven hotels, they told 50% of the cleaning crew that their job was the equivalent of going to the gym, that they were getting like a, a really like a decent workout when they did their cleaning job. And they told the other half nothing. And the half that they told they were getting a workout from had like t all these health benefits, like better weight management, like blood pressure, like all, all all of their sort of markers improved. Just And they did a better job of cleaning too. <laughs> I don't think they marked that, but they probably did I'm because sure there they was did. an with a, energy and enthusiasm. An, exactly, an added incentive. Totally. But it is like very interesting how, you know, your energy and your attitude has a direct relationship to your outcome. True. And I believe it is because you're you're going to work harder but I also believe that there's something on like a more ethereal level that we can't perhaps uh measure but we can believe because of the results so working hard and doing your best you are a hard worker yeah you don't ever stop i remember that uh what does dad always say about mccallums yeah there's something about i don't remember Keep going, keep going, keep going. But um, where'd you get your work ethic? I know what dad says about me. He says, I take how long she says it's going to take and how much she says it's going to cost and multiply by three. And I'm usually right. <laughs> That's a good one. It's a good one. <laughs> Hard for me to confess it's probably true. Well, that's all right. But where did you... Um... That's a different subject, but where did you get your work ethic? From whom? What examples? Because your mother was a loving mother. Your father worked, but not conventionally. I was the oldest of four children, and <clears throat> therefore I never knew what was coming my way. I mean, I remember the first time we got report cards at school. I was shocked. I had no idea. 
what that was. You know, because you experienced everything first. So I experienced everything first. Yeah. And um, I did well at school, very well, but I couldn't wait to get out. Why? Um, I think in part because you, if you look at a school and a st- one student in the school, if that student doesn't show up one day, nothing really changes. But if you take an office or a job site and one member of the team doesn't show up, that's a problem. Well, it goes to number four, fulfilling your obligations, doing what you say you will do. The more that you commit to doing, the more important it is for you to fulfill your obligations. Mm-hmm. Whereas with school, you're showing up because you have to, because it's like you're checking boxes, you know? I um, I think so many people who don't do well in school, I know you did do well in school, um, it's, people think it's like some sign of intelligence or capability, but really it's a sign of like, what do you want to do? You know, some people just... You know, there are people in our family who don't do well in school, and they're very intelligent, and it's just, it's boring. They don't like it. They don't want to do it. They want to be doing something else. So you were impressive in that you did very well in school, and you wanted to do something else. But for a lot of kind of underachievers in school, I think that's just it. It's like there's no, it almost doesn't matter, right? You can get sick, and nobody cares. You cannot show up, and there's no effect. And so the the bigger your obligation and the more you sign up for, the more important it is for you to actually show up, which obviously, as you've written here, is something that matters. Also, I graduated from high school in 1962, and um, it, it, we had spent the year getting into colleges, looking at colleges and being accepted, rejected, whatever. And I was fortunate. I was accepted at the three colleges I applied to, and I told the school that I had decided not to go to college. And the man who was in charge of getting, it, it was in fact a boarding school, not, not really a high school. Um, and it was important to that school to place their students in good colleges, and I would have fulfilled that for them. But here I was opting out, and he said, don't worry, Kathy. I'm sure you'll find a wonderful husband and be married in no time. And that was definitely part of what was motivating me, that this, that the society around me, and the, including the academic society, was about school and working hard, and then becoming a woman, I mean, becoming a wife and a mother. And it was, it was not about fulfilling your inner longings to create or do something in the world. And but yet you went on and did something at a young age. You oh, worked. I did. I didn't pay any attention. I mean, I thought that was a lot of baloney, what he said. And and it was exactly why I was doing what I was doing. I didn't waste his time telling him that, but I did. I did. I was, yes. Tell me about that. Um, tell you about what? You're working as okay. a young person who decided not to go as, to college. Yes. Well, I worked as a year for secretary, 
as a secretary. And so this is 63? 63. So you're 19. And then I did, in fact, go to college for a year. I went to Sarah Lawrence College. Um, 63, 4. And, and my, my advisor there told me I had a moral obligation to be in college. That was another one of those. <laughs> Which advisor? From high school? No, no, no. The guy, my advisor, Sarah Lawrence, <laughs> anthropologist. <laughs> he hadn't learned much. And um, I didn't even approve of anthropology, you know, going to backward nations and figuring out why they did this and trying to make them Christian and modern. And I thought, what business of, it's not your business to do that. But I feel that way about people who find out when they're pregnant, what the gender of the baby to be is. I think it's not your business. That baby will arrive when he's ready and he will let you know when he pops out, whether he's a boy or a girl. In our family, he will let you know <laughs> when right. he is a boy. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I specialize in one product. That is true. <laughs> my brother and I, who have six boys between us. God, that's a mouthful, huh? That is my a... brother and I have six boys between us. That is true. Throw in Over... my cousin Jesse, and we've got nine. True. So you worked as a secretary for a year. What happened I, after that? After that, um, God, did I know? I had no. I don't even remember thinking what would I do. Anyway, this is all in New York City. Yeah. Well, Sarah Lawrence was Bronxville, not very. But the secretary job was in yes, New York City. Yes, yes. And uh, the beautiful part about Sarah Lawrence was it was like 30 minutes and 99 cents on the train from New York. You know, you could... And do I recall that you used to put your trousers on on the train? Um, or was that years before? That was years before. When yeah. you were leaving Long Island. And... Yeah, yeah. I do remember the first time I ran into my grandmother at Bloomingdale's and I had trousers on. And uh, she couldn't have given a damn, my grandmother. But I thought, oh, Jesus, this is going to be a problem. I mean, this is how much the world has changed. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, so after Sarah Lawrence, I became a model, a photographic fashion model. And that was... Um, Gave me a lot of independence uh, because I made good money and had my own apartment and didn't have to have roommates. Or, um, and uh, when I was 20, I, uh, I worked quite a bit for a magazine, which is still around, called Glamour. And um, Glamour decided to do a series of photos one weekend with two actors who had a television show called The Man from Uncle, which was the first spy show on television. They had James Bond books existed, and there'd at least been one movie, but there was no Mission Impossible or any of that stuff yet. So The Man from Uncle was a big deal. And so I arrived at Jerry Schatzberg's studio early one Saturday morning, and... Um, on this television show, there was a, a dark-haired actor and a very blonde actor. And so Glamour had used a dark-haired model, me, and a blonde model named Anietta Freiberg. And um, I met your father when I was 20 years old. Um, and uh, Jerry Schatzberg was planning to do photo the photos in the studio. And, um, David 
your father had never been to New York before. And he said, we have New York. Why would we do it here? And so we, we did uh, once one photo in the kitchen of the Regency Hotel, which was a new hotel, very chic on Park Avenue and 61st Street. And um, <laughs> Anyetta and I had on bathing suits, and uh, Daddy and Robert had on black tie. And we were, it was, you know, kind of rushing through the kitchen, and there were guns. And, <laughs> and we did another one um, uh, outside on the street. I was leaping over Daddy's presumably dead body and holding hands with Robert, and behind us was the Flatiron Building, and it's a wonderful picture. You look at it, and it could be today, except for the cars. They look very old. But this is 1965, a long time ago, and, um, and it was February 28th. We were lucky it was a warm February 28th in my sleeveless dress and no, no stockings and sandals. Um, so you know, everything changed after that. Two and a half years later, we were married. And um, Did you model much after you were married? No, because Daddy lived in California. And in those days, there, there wasn't the backing and forthing the way there is now. Yeah. I, oh, every job that w- was offered to me, which would be a significant job, um, I was with wherever Daddy was working. You know, he didn't work in California after we were married. The series was canceled quite quickly, and he worked in England and uh, Italy, uh, Yugoslavia, other places. Was was it hard for you to say no to work when you had built up this career? It was really hard for me not to have something to do. I was not a good camp follower. I did not sit on the set ever. Yeah, you always say that about band practice, like the spouses that stay and watch the music. You're like, I don't know how they do that. Really? Really? Contributing Um, nothing. That's not true. As a performer, it contributes a ton to have those. Oh, my gosh. Our drummer's wife came to our last practice, and it was like just having someone other than you to bounce your art off of is Hmm. real. And to see them enjoying it. Yeah, that's true. It's tremendously beneficial to, to us, to me, when we, I love having a little crowd. Um, I mean, I love when my dogs are in the room and we're playing music. Seriously, <laughs> though, true. that energy, it's like an exchange of energy, you know, yeah. that, that vibration happens and it feels good. Um, so what did you do with your time? Um, because well, this was what year? Now we're talking like 68. So you had another two years before you had right, a child. Right. I guess it wasn't that long. And there well, was the excitement there, of being dad's and there wife. Were three, I when I married dad, he had three sons. And how often were you guys all together? Lots. Oh, really? Yeah. In California all the time. So there's no lack of activity. No, <laughs> no lack of, uh, with three boys, of no. obligation, as we were True. talking about. True. And they call me wicked to this day. Because Which I'm a, I love. I'm a wicked stepmother. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is really cool. Really, really yeah. cool. I mean, my oldest stepson is 64. Oh, my God. <laughs> my oldest brother is 64. That's that is true. That's blowing. true. My husband will soon be 60. But I know. Well, Valentine will be 59. It's amazing how it happens. I know. It's amazing how it happens. Like, all of these years, they just... It's so wonderful, but um, so important to just sit and recognize it and live in it. 
And we have, we have, thanks to you and your brother Peter, we have six grandsons, ages eight to 18. Almost 19. Uh, well, almost nine, you know. I mean, yeah, always. Yeah. Keeps yeah. going. There you Keep have going. it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, I mean, one is six foot three college student, and the other is about two foot three <laughs> eight year old, and um, everything in between. So you became a mother, and you that was your your work mm-hmm. for many years. And then I think it was 82, was it? You went back to an office? Or when two? you stayed at school for lunch. I, uh, I took the job that I only recently retired from. And tell me about that transition. What was that like for you? Well, that was what I was always. Uh, I mean, being a model, I never gave a, a hoot about fashion. The, the only thing I learned from being a model is that I can <clears throat> look at a catalog and see a dress and know whether or not it's going to suit me. You know, it saves me a lot of trying on. And... Um, but as far as caring, what's the next thing? No. But I always cared about interiors, furniture, placement. What, one thing I did in my off period was I created collages, some of them, most of them pretty big. In my living room. In your living room. They are and, so beautiful. And they could, people see them and, I mean, y- had you, I think of all the things I started and didn't follow through with for good reason, just yeah. like you didn't want to sit in the studio making collages out of chicken wire right. and manila envelopes and keys, because that is actually what they consist <laughs> of. Um, but had you, that could have turned in with momentum, with sustained momentum, that could have turned into a life, professional life. They're beautiful. Thank you. Sorry to interrupt. Collages. Collages. I mean, that was you. You were asking what I did before I became a mum, mm-hmm. and the collages were before the kids. Oh yes, collages in California. Yeah, right. Yeah, seed packet ones. I'm pretty sure. It was and did you go to any to design school of any kind before? I went to the New York School of Interior Design. Um, in 19, from 19, 1971 and 72, right after my mom died. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was interesting. The studio art classes were interesting, learning about neutralizing colors. And, and how was it balancing going back to work and having kids and sort of making that shift? Because nowadays... Um, that's still hard for women, and there's a lot more support and dialogue yeah. about it. What well, were some of your challenges? Um, not too many women my age were working. If you look back, you think of your friends at school. Their moms weren't working. I think we weren't really paying attention to what our mothers were doing. But if you think of it, Fiona and yeah. and Stephanie, and they weren't. Um both models, right? Those moms? Stephanie's mom? I don't know about Fiona's mom. But anyway, doesn't matter. Keep yeah. going. Um, so the challenges of your going back to yeah, work yeah. at 38 with children Well, actually, at home. after a year, I think after I'd been there full time for a year, I, or maybe two, 
Anyway, I said, I can't do this anymore. And at that point, they took me off salary and said I could come in whenever I wanted to, and they would pay me hourly. And that worked for quite a while. That was good. And, um, of course, it's not a job she could do. <laughs> so what time. made you say, I can't do this anymore? What you're say, saying, not, no time with the children, no. You know, I mean, it, it's one thing when you're thinking about school time, but a lot of the year isn't school time. Dude, you're preaching to the choir, having just come off a summer where, like, I got very little done. Because of all of that invisible work, we do, they now call it invisible work. It's probably oh. a term you don't know. But oh. all of the work that you do that goes unnoticed for your family because it's the societal expectation that, like, you make sure there's toilet paper. Right. You know. The light bulbs are changed. The light bulbs are changed. The school has all the forms they need. Um, I even forget kids. You do that just running a household with you and your husband. Oh, Totally. But I think it's different for younger yeah. couples now. Yeah. There's, There's a division of labor that um, uh, in the home that, you well, know. Well, your father cooks has cooked everything we've ever eaten. Yes. Which well, is, every marriage has some division of labor. Right. But the invisible work, I would say that, yeah, the invisible work is. Um, Laundry. <laughs> dishwashers. Yeah. Um, I've had to plan them. Like I, when you'll do your invisible When I'll do my, yeah. yeah. Um, the dishes I've put completely on the shoulders of my 12-year-old, completely. Um, and sometimes that backfires. Like this past weekend, um, I he didn't unload the dishwasher. He didn't unload the dishwasher. He didn't unload the dishwasher. By the time that we got to Sunday, it was like <laughs> fucking bighorn mountains popping out of my <laughs> sink. It was like unbelievable. And the best part was he didn't do it because the dishwasher had run. What he didn't realize is there was like, no, nor did I. I didn't look because when I say I'm not going to do something, I'm not going to fucking do it, right? Like it's hands <laughs> off. I am delegating like a motherfucker. So he finally opened the clean dishwasher and he was like, what? There's like three things in here. I could have done this on Friday. And I just like <laughs> sat back like, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> but I've given him the dishes responsibility in the city because um, it's really just the two of us. And the laundry, it's um, I'm going to do on Fridays. Just, and, you know, like if you run out of clothes. But I mean, I'm coming off when I had three kids at home and there was one year where all three of my kids were in the same school that required a jacket and tie every day and, you know, nice dress pants and then sports clothing after school, which were so repulsive when they came home, they had to be washed. So it was the laundry was like, I mean, three shirts that needed to be like pressed it was 15 shirts a week. I mean, it was. And they believe me, they stopped getting pressed. And I remember when I first <laughs> found out about those Brooks Brothers, like no iron shirts, yeah. I was like, oh, these are great. And then I heard there was like formaldehyde in them to keep them from wrinkling and it was going to poison your children. But oh, I missed that one. Well, I got over it pretty fast <laughs> when we got to, <laughs> those hand me down non iron shirts became mighty attractive. Because <laughs> they say that the, the fastest way to get stuff into your system is topically. So like when you wear oh. like cheap, shitty clothes, you're actually, it's another way we're poisoning ourselves when everyone's like, I wonder why everyone's getting cancer. Oh, like, dear. Well, could be your shitty space clothing. Oh, dear. But 
I digress. I'm a survivor. I know you are. Thank the fucking Lord. Yeah. How long ago did you have breast cancer? Oh, I was diagnosed basically on 9-11. Oh, that's right. No, basically 9-12 for me. Yeah. You told nine, me 9-12. It was 9-12. It was 9-12. They said they, yeah, it was. And uh, let me tell you, in New York City at that time, breast cancer was pff, nothing. Well, I got to say in my own heart, when you told me, as scary as it was, you weren't buried under like yeah. a collapsed building totally. and airplane rubble. Totally. Like, like breast cancer, we got this. Like, yeah. yeah, we got a shot. <laughs> we got a it. chance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I remember, well, we're not going to digress. And they also, they but... they emptied the hospital. That's right what away. I was going to say, right. So that uh, and didn't because fill they were them. expecting a lot of, of wounded. And um, so that allowed me to have immediate surgery. Right. So. Um, but that's 21 years ago. Wow. That's, those are good survivor rates. Really? Thank you, universe. Thank you for taking such good care of yourself. Thank you for being my bestie and a wonderful mom. I really would have loved to have talked about the secrets of your body. And I think that I'm going to prep you better the next time so that okay. I can get into the nitty gritty of your body. And, um, I love you. Thank you for good, strong genes. And for giving me a list of what matters, it's a, uh, you didn't give me this list when I was little, but you gave it to me indirectly by leading by the power of example. So thank you very much. I love you. Right back at you. Perfect child. If you are craving to go deeper on your self-love and body love journey, please join me inside my private Facebook group, The Self-Love Shack. We meet once a week to continue our discussions and go deeper. You can also check out my self-love courses and coaching options at selflovepeddler.com. Follow the link in the show description for more details. I leave you with this. The only way to end women's cycle of body shaming, judgment, and self-loathing is through a common pact and plan to change the way we collectively think about our bodies and the bodies of those around us. Sending you peace.